Exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And last time we started talking about the classic universal horror films of the 30s and 40s. And this episode we continue that discussion with A Tale of Two Black Cats. That almost sounds like a Jollo. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, we'll be talking about The Black Cat from 1934, starring Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, and The Black Cat. From 1941, starring Bela Lugosi. Starring being a very loose term here, but yes. Alright, so last week we you know, we started off with Dracula, which makes sense because Dracula sort of kick-started universal horror in the sound era. So that was 1931, and the first Black Cat we're talking about is 34. So what were uh, some of the universal horror movies uh, sort of like between... Dracula and the Black Cat, like, sort of led to the Black Cat. Yeah, well, later on in 31, there was, of course, Frankenstein, which brought Boris Karloff into the uh, superstardom stratosphere of being a, a horror icon. And that was followed by films like The Mummy, also starring Boris Karloff, and The Invisible Man. And there was also uh, Murders in the Rue Morgue that Lugosi made. Which, uh, you know, it was planned before Frankenstein, but it's often seen as, like, his consolation prize for not being in the movie Frankenstein. Um, and it, it's a fine movie in its own in its own way. But the success of Frankenstein, you know, it led to Lugosi having sort of, like, this new rival for, for the mantle that was sort of, like, abandoned when Lon Chaney died. Of like, you know, the king of, uh, well, what we would now call horror films. And... Karloff was, uh, after Frankenstein, he was under contract to Universal. And so the studio put a lot of stuff behind him, promoting him. Lugosi, uh, he did Murders in the Rue Morgue, and then he went on to do other stuff because he was not under contract to Universal. He was a freelance actor at the time. So unfortunately for him, Universal, they would, you know, if they had something coming up, like, you know, The Mummy, uh, they would go to Karloff first. And they would have him doing all these publicity events, and Lugosi was just sort of uh, scraping along with what he could get at other studios. Mm. And then um, Universal decided to grab Lugosi and throw him together with Karloff in The Black Cat. So it's kind of like their first monster mash, in a way. Yeah. And their, uh, their paths had crossed before. In various ways. Um, they both were um, very early members of the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, Karloff would actually be, you could call him a founding member. The, the, very, the very first meeting of SAG, as we call it often, they basically just, they had, I think, I think there were about 30 people there. And they all just, like, picked random numbers out of a hat for, like, what their membership number would be. And Karloff's is, it's 20-something. Really? And then Lugosi joined, like, right after that meeting. So I, I'm sorry, it wouldn't be 30-something, because I believe their membership numbers are both 20-something. Hmm. But Lugosi was not at the initial meeting, but he jumped right on board, because he had been very politically active. 
in uh, his home country of Hungary, which is why he had to get out of there. So, yes, but they were both uh, very big you know, supporters of actors' rights and things like that. So Lugosi and Karloff were making all these other, pretty much pigeonholed into the horror genre at this point. Yeah, and despite their efforts to, you know, branch out somewhat. I mean, the same year he did The Black Cat, Karloff was also in uh, the John Ford film The Lost Patrol, although he does play a religious maniac in the movie, but also House of Rothschild, which was like a big uh, dramatic film at Fox where he played a, an anti-Semite. Um, and he was uh, he was well-received in those roles, but... They were still, I mean, in one of them, he's crazy. In the other one, he's a villain. So he was still, he still sort of had that role thrust upon him. Right, right. So this was one of uh, Universal's first adaptations of an Edgar Allan Poe story as well. Or had they done ones before? Because Murders in the Room Morgue, that's an, that's based on an Edgar Allan Poe story, right? Yeah, that would be the first one, I think. So that, was the, um, that was the first. I mean, that, I would say of the sound era. I'm not entirely sure if they did anything in the silent era, but that mm. was... Of the in the thirties, that was Universal's first effort at adapting Poe, um, and that was—I mean—that also is sort of a loose adaptation, but it's not quite as loose as the Black Cat. Yeah, it has almost nothing to do with the Poe story. Yeah, it's weird to think that like one of the publicity uh, stunts that they did—or not stunts, but one of, one of the efforts to get publicity for the Black Cat was. Um, they would tell uh, theaters to tell the local schools like, oh, uh, the teachers should bring their students in uh, and, like because it ties in with like this famous author. And like you could read the short story at school and then bring the students to see the Karloff Lugosi horror film, <laughs> oh The Black Cat. Lord, in the theater. Yeah. Just to bust in all those elementary school kids. Yeah. It makes total sense. There was also one gimmick where um, if a kid... And, like, just thinking about this idea, like, how you wouldn't realize that this was just going to end horribly, I have no idea. There was a gimmick where they were like, if a child shows up with a black cat, they get <laughs> they God. get their ticket, like, half off or something like that. And people would do it. And cats are not... You'd bring them into this theater where there's all these loud strangers and everything, and cats were flipping out... People were getting hurt. Cops were called. Like so, that's the true black cat experience. If you is yeah. <laughs> sitting in a dark room full of uh, cats who are wigging out. Yeah, and then there was the black cat parade. And that is truly horrifying. There was the black cat parade before uh, before they finished making the film, where they had all these uh, people just bring in their black cats for well basically a parade and judges were going to pick the best black cat and that was going to be the black cat who acted in the film oh my God. and Karloff and Lugosi were both there and uh, which must have been hell on earth for Bella Lugosi because he hated cats oh really and I'm not sure if it was like a true phobia like his character in the film uh, but he he was a dog person through and through he just could not stand cats so the two films that we looked at for this episode, they must have been just very unpleasant for him. Especially the 1941 Yeah, he's got to deal with a lot of cats in that one. Yeah, he's almost literally a cat wrangler. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, let's first talk about the, uh, the Black Cat from 1934. This was the first time that I'd seen it, but I was somewhat familiar with it because of its sort of uh, reputation as being the first on-screen 
face-off between Lugosi and Karloff. And uh, I gotta say, I really enjoyed it a lot. It's kind of messed up, isn't it? It is very, very dark. <laughs> Surprisingly dark for a movie in that time. Yeah, I've seen this movie... I have no idea how many times I've seen this movie. I had it on VHS, the like the early 90s Universal VHS box and stuff. And then I got it on DVD, and I just watched it over and over, and every time there's something in there that makes it even more disturbing that I missed somehow. And yeah, it really does feel like there are layers of... It is like peeling back an onion in yeah. that way, of just like all sorts of things that are suggested that are going on just outside of the frame of camera, essentially, that uh, all, everything that is implying is uh, very unsettling. Um, so I guess for listeners who haven't seen the movie, uh, what's the general outline of the plot? Uh, let's see. We have a, a honeymooning couple in who are on a train in Eastern Europe. I don't remember exactly where they're headed. Yeah, I think it was kind of um, kept a little vague. Well, no, there's a whole scene where they are yeah, they speaking say, di- dis- uh, distinctly about which town or which, which town they're going to. Yeah, because it starts off where, um, like, the conductor or somebody's looking at their passports and, like, right. saying where they're going. Um, and then they, uh, there's, like, there's been a mix-up, he says, and they have to have this other uh, passenger in their train car, and it's Dr. Vitas Vertigast, played by Bela Lugosi. And, uh, let's see, they get off the train, and they get on this, like, little tour bus thing. Yeah. The tour bus crashes the driver is dies horribly yeah and they're all just kind of like well he's dead let's uh (laughs) let's get out of here so um the couple goes with vertigast and his manservant uh yeah what's his name what's the manservant's name thamal 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 he's sort of like vaguely asian maybe it's one of the weird it's one of the um so a lot of the information that we have about the characters is given to us by Lugosi right. with his thick Hungarian accent. So some of it is like, wait, who? What is that guy's name? <laughs> um, so Lugosi's character was on his way to the home of uh, Shalmar Perlzig. Shalmar. Shalmar. <laughs> yeah. uh, this architect who uh, he had fought with in World War One. He was going to visit him. And they end up, uh, the whole group of them end up staying at Pearlzig's house for a, for a little bit. And it's a weird, wild night. <laughs> yeah, because we essentially find out that Pearlzig, who's played by Boris Karloff, we find out that he is actually the leader of a satanic cult. And he has these, uh, the, the dead bodies of these women encased in glass tubes spread all, all over his home yeah one of them is uh Lugosi's character's wife who uh let's see like during world war one they were both at this fort marmoroche <laughs> again this is all <laughs> as told by bill Lugosi, so it's like fort marmoroche <laughs> and the uh so Presley's house was built on the ruins of this um this fort where they were held prisoner Right. That's that. That was yeah. That's what I sort of took from it. It was almost like a, some almost similar to like a concentration camp type of a setting is what it seemed like. Yeah, like it was per- very traumatic experience. Pearls like sold out 
the rest of his unit, I guess, uh, to the Russians. So Perlzy was able to get away, and Verdegast had to stay there as a prisoner, and uh, it seems that he's the only person to make it out. And he's there for, like, 15 years or something like that. Well, the film takes place 15 years later. Wait, oh. no, it doesn't. Yeah, because it's been 15 years since he's seen his uh, his daughter or his wife. Oh, that's... Okay, yes, I'm but I think, sorry. And I think yes. he's been in, in prison that whole time, or was he... He's, like, just getting out? I'm not 100% sure, because then who's his servant? Who's that guy? Right, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Which, But that's one of those vague things, because that servant is, like, extremely loyal to him. He's willing to die for him. Yeah, without any sort of, well, dialogue at all. He, I don't think he speaks... Yeah, I don't think so. But, so... <laughs> Yeah, the whole thing kind of... What, what's really cool about the movie is that it is a true pairing of these two larger-than-life figures in Lugosi yeah. and Karloff. And seeing Lugosi out for revenge against this guy who's really just like an evil, sick bastard. Yeah, he stole Lugosi's wife, and then after she died, presumably murdered by him, he marries... Lugosi's daughter, his own stepdaughter. Yeah. And then at the at, end of who knows the end, what age because it's like the you know, the daughter is young when we find her and this is like 15 years later and like who knows when the heck he cuz that's, yeah. that's like one one that's one layer of this onion that you sort of as you're getting deeper into the story you're like okay, if he's married to the daughter like how old was she when this relationship started, you know? Like ugh, that's Yeah, and they have the same awful. actress playing the daughter and the corpse of her own mother that's lucille lund who had a horrible time on the set um she when she first started universal carl lemley jr the head of production there he kind of hit on her and she turned him down and he was like oh fuck you then so she got she just like small roles and stuff and then uh edgar ulmer the director of the black cat um he I guess made advances towards her and she turned him down and so so that scene where uh, she's like a, playing a corpse in that glass coffin and she's sort of like hanging there um, I mean she obviously wasn't actually hanging but it was very uncomfortable and they were shooting that and then uh, the director called for lunch and she just stayed there and he had them just leave her in there for lunch <laughs> what the which, that's one of those things where if Karloff and Lugosi had been aware of that, I mean, they were, you know, early the members of the, the, of the guild. guild right? They would have definitely had some opposition yeah. to that. And then the, the scene at the end where, in the guise of uh, Karen, or Karin, um, the daughter, right. uh, she is killed at the end. Uh, Ambiguously. Yeah, and she's sort of like tied to this table and she has this weird thing like attached to her neck uh, and it's like tied there. And apparently it was tied so tight that she could hardly breathe. And they did the same thing. They called lunch and everybody left and she was stuck on that table. And she, because it was so tight, she couldn't yell or anything. And she actually began to bleed from her mouth. And then oh my God. Harry Cording, the actor who played Thamal, I get the, the Lugosi's manservant. He just happened to wander back to the set and he saw her and he flipped the fuck out. And he basically saved her life. And he just like, that's insane. Yeah. <laughs> that was, uh, she gave an interview in the early 90s to Fangoria, uh, where she recounted those, um, 
terrifying experiences. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine. I mean, that sort of stuff just could not fly in today's big Hollywood stu- in the studios that exist today. Yeah. Because um, nobody, they don't have anybody covering anything up for them anymore. Right. I mean, this is definitely the product of the studio system of that time, which, you know, I mean, there are, I mean, hundreds of horror stories of actors and act, and especially actresses who got mixed up in all sorts of trouble. Yeah, like Zita Johan on um, in The Mummy, directed by Carl Freund, he was a monster to her, and he was like torturing her for that whole shoot. Crazy. Have you seen any other Edgar Ulmer films? What other movies did he do? <laughs> His big one uh, that often comes up is probably Detour. Uh, it's a film noir he did in '45. It's Roger Ebert referred to it as like the best film to ever take place in just like two rooms or something. I mean, if you look at it, it's more than two rooms, but it's such a. It's like it could have been shot for like five dollars, and it's it's amazing. For, like it's a good movie, but if you look, think of the way it was made, it's really amazing because it's so there's so many close-ups and dark shots that there's only a handful of actors. It's like a weird. Um, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just a very like minimalist film. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And uh, he is somebody who came out of. Uh, German Expressionism, he claimed to be, I don't know if this is documented, but he always claimed to have worked on Caligari and the Golem as like a like a set dresser and stuff like that. I'm, I'm sure that there are probably a lot of uh, German filmmakers who may have been like, oh yeah, I, I, had, I worked on that. I had a hand in that. But he also, after... I'm not that I'm like, like, yeah, right, he didn't. Yeah, I mean, he could have, you don't know. Um... <laughs> After the Black Cat, uh, he kind of went underground for a bit. He did some like Yiddish films that you know obviously didn't get really wide release because not a lot of people outside of like New York City at the time spoke Yiddish. Um, and he sort of hit Poverty Row and made a few films for, like PRC. He did Bluebeard with John Carradine, which is often fondly remembered. Okay. I I saw it once when I was very young and I didn't think much of it, but I was maybe too young. To appreciate it, I'll try it again sometime. And then later on in the fifties, he did like the Man from Planet X and Daughter of Doctor Jekyll and Beyond the Time Barrier and okay, yeah, some sort of like schlocky fifties stuff. A lot of that stuff you can find in public domain collections yeah. and things. But one of the main reasons that his like studio career never really uh, went anywhere after the Black Cat is because he <laughs> he ended up having an affair with this woman who was married to uh, a relative of Carl Lemley, the head of Universal. And we learned from last episode how, uh, I guess, protective of his family he was. Yeah, Uncle Carl Lemley. Um, And she did end up divorcing her husband, and she became Shirley Ulmer, and was married to Edgar G. Ulmer uh, until his death, I believe. Um... But yeah, he was pretty much blackballed from that. He wasn't even invited to the, to the premiere of the Black Cat. Oh wow! Yeah, but just if even if like the Black Cat is the only Ulmer film that you've seen, I mean, there's 
some genius in there. He's a very talented filmmaker. Oh, for sure. And he's got a very twisted sense of style. Yeah, I mean, like, first of all, I mean, the movie is really, really beautiful to look at. I mean, the set design is incredible, which makes sense considering that the character that Karloff plays is an architect, and that sense of visual style is really, it's it's stunning. I think, and it stands out among some of the other Universal films that I've that I've seen anyway mm. of that time. It just like it really feels strikingly different. It's the most modern. Yeah, and it deals um, like the subject matter deals specifically with uh, like modern themes. Like these are people who fought in World War One, mm-hmm. and Perlzig is just. He apparently is just an evil person. Yeah. Verdegast, the war really fucked him up. He had a traumatic experience in the war, and he just, he wants vengeance, and he's just a very, he's a very tragic character. Yeah, and I mean, he, he has this uh, deathly fear of specifically black cats, yeah. which is really the only uh, reason why the movie's called Black Cat at all. Um but his reaction when he sees that black cat, it has those shades of, like, a PTSD flashback or something. Yeah. Like, in the prison camp, maybe the uh, the other soldiers just tortured him by throwing black cats at right, him. Right, yeah, we don't know why it is he has this deathly fear, but um, it is interesting, because, I mean, World War One was really the the first time that you had a generation of people who, I mean, back then they called it shell shock. Um, but the war, I mean, the war was just so horrific on a scale that had never been seen before. And there were all these soldiers coming home who were physically uh, deformed in many cases because of uh, either amputations, because at that time medical uh, surgery had gotten better to the point where they could actually save a lot of these people's lives um, but it left them in these uh, somewhat horrific looking forms but then you also had people who were just emotionally uh, just traumatized and it's interesting to see these films start to deal with, with that mm. um, and I was reading that even in like the early uh, like Lon Chaney movies which were very focused on like the deformed face of these uh, these people who were perceived as monsters, could be perhaps seen as a reflection of all these soldiers coming home who were, you know, to their loved ones, but they looked totally different and were oftentimes ostracized. I can see that, yeah. But yeah, this movie kind of feels more like it. I mean, it deals with the uh, the emotional trauma of going through something like that. And Pearlzig, it, it's it's interesting because it's based on World War One, but it has it feels almost like, like I mean, I brought up the concentration camp yeah. earlier. Is it you know because the way that he describes the experience, it feels like that, and Pearlzig is almost like a Nazi sympathizer or something, you know. Mm. But it's nice to see Lugosi playing a role that though he is very uh, deranged and crazy especially it comes out in the end when he finally has uh karloff at the end of his uh scalpel he's playing a sympathetic 
character and someone that we're that we want to root for. I mean, because this other yeah. this guy like destroyed his life essentially. We're definitely always on his side, Lugosi's side. So it's nice to see him cast in that role, and it's also nice to see Karloff portraying a character that is just so despicable. Because his famous roles, like Frankenstein's monster, for instance, is a very sympathetic character, despite him yes. being the monster. And even him in, uh, like, The Mummy, for instance, we can still sympathize with him because he, he it's about this, uh, this, this romance and this lost love that he had, and he was wronged by the, you know, the, the ancient Egyptians, and he's just trying to get his love back. And we can understand that. With him in the black hat, it's like there's nothing redeeming about this guy at all. And he clearly just relishes every moment of evil. And the way he uses his lisp. Yeah. He has a deathly fear of cats. Cats. <laughs> I don't know how well uh, lisps are picked up by your microphones, but. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But it's but yeah, it's like it's strangely effective and very eerie. Yeah. to hear that lisp come through. And he always, I mean, that's just, Karloff had a lisp. That's just how he always spoke. But, like, he didn't always accentuate it like like that, like yeah. emphasize it. And it's a very, it's a, it's a, he doesn't have relatively as much dialogue as, like, Lugosi does. No. It seems like, a, like, from his introduction in the, in through the scenes that follow, it feels like he's very silent for a lot of that. Because he, it just, he seems like he's in control. Yeah. Like, it's like, I don't even have to speak. I just have to stand here and just watch all you people fight. Yeah. Just stand back and see what's happening. Because he knows that the next day his cult is showing up. Right. <laughs> and they're going to have their uh, their sacrifice. Yeah. So it turns out that this, uh, this newlywed couple who winds up at their house, you know, he essentially wants to take the, the bride to be sacrificed by their uh, satanic cult. And it's funny because like the, the, the satanic cult thing kind of comes out of nowhere Yeah. Uh, towards the end, in the last act, which is kind of amazing because it's like, we know that he's like a bad guy and everything because of everything that he's done to uh, Vertigast. But then it's like, oh yeah, like no, he's just like straight up evil. He's worshiping the devil. He's going to kill this woman to be sacrificed. And it's, uh, you know, he's everything that you think he is and more. And it sort of, there's a great scene where Lugosi and Karloff are playing chess for the life of the girl. Yeah, which was changed from, the original intentions of the film were, um, like, they were still playing chess for the girl, but they both wanted to kind of do horrible things to her. Like, really? When they started shooting, Lugosi's character, uh, after, from every moment after he first sees that black cat and flips out, mm -hmm. something snaps in him, and he just wants to rape Joan. And it's there's a little bit of there's a hint of a suggestion of this in the early in the first scene when he's in the train car with them. Yes, because <laughs> the, the the Joan and her uh, Peter husband, Allison. Or as you would say, David fucking Manners. David fucking Manners. They're asleep in the train car, and Belagosi uh, creepily sort of leans over and brushes her hair through his hands, and uh, yeah, it, you know, and he sort of brushes it off. He's like, "Oh, she just reminds me of something." Yeah, because there's that great cut 
back to David fucking Manners. And he's, he's just staring at him. He's like, like what, what the fuck are you doing <laughs> to my wife? This, as much as I dislike David Manners, this is probably his best performance that I've seen. And, I mean, you brought it up a little bit last episode, talking about his role in Dracula. But seeing this movie as well, I can definitely see where some of the frustration might be because he it seems like he's just playing the same yeah he's character. that guy and in the mummy too he's just like ah I, like he just won't he's a stubborn guy who won't really believe in what's going on he well he and joan in the black cat basically are uh, there's a stereotypical ugly american like there are these two people who are just they're traveling abroad and they're sort of, like, looking down on all the various, like, things they see. They make fun of Pearlzig's name. They're like, Pigslow or whatever. Right, right. Pearlzig. Yeah. Um, and he just, you know, he has this air about him the whole movie where, like, well, all this stuff is... He, he has that line. It's uh, nonsense. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> sounds like a lot of supernatural baloney to me. And Lugosi's like, supernatural, perhaps. Baloney, perhaps not. <laughs> yeah. Which is a quote that they actually, they use that clip in uh, the Monkeys movie, Head. And on the album, it's weird. On the on the album head, it's its own track that line, and it's called "Superstitious," not "Supernatural." And I've read uh, reviews of this. I know that the one in um, one of Danny Perry's cult movies books, um, he misquotes it and says "superstitious" instead of "supernatural." Hmm. And he's like, "Oh, it's got that famous line in it, superstitious, perhaps." But you watch the movie, you you and you listen to the track on the Monkeys album, even it says Supernatural. But anyway, yeah, David fucking Manners. <laughs> yeah, he just is kind of bland, leading man guy, who's not really doing much leading. Yeah, and he's someone. I mean, like, off camera, he's somebody who just always kind of looked down on all these movies anyway, and a lot of actors, especially back then, did. They were just like, well, I'm under contract. I got to do this horror movie. Right. Um, but he was just very vocal about it. And he well, was and, always and he doesn't really have it. big parts in them. Yeah. He's just kind of there. You yeah. Know? He's like the romantic So he, I mean, I can understand him being frustrated with the roles because he's just like, ugh, I'm just doing the same shit over and over again. Well, like just a, just a couple years after this, he just, uh, he gave up Hollywood. And then a few years after that, he gave up acting altogether and just moved out to the desert and became a writer. Good riddance. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about like what is kind of simmering below the surface in this movie. Um, the things that really jumped out at me, like I, I, I kind of mentioned before, the uh, the suggestion of Vertigas' daughter marrying uh, Karloff is very unsettling. But there's a scene specifically when Joan sees her and they talk and she says, no, your father is here. He's coming. You know, he's, he's here now and he thinks you're dead and blah, blah, blah. And then Karloff comes in, sees her talking to her, brings her into the next room. The door closes and we just hear her screaming. And Karloff doesn't say anything. Yeah. He not a, not a word. Yeah. Just walks in, takes her into the other room, closes the door and we just hear her screaming. And I don't know what what are we supposed to infer that he's doing to her in there? Like, is he just like just beating her mercilessly, or 
doing whatever made her end up on that slab later on. Yeah, and then it's just like that's the last time we see her alive. And then until she until we see her her body. Yeah. Yeah, another thing that like I don't know if I was picking up on it or not or if it's there, but this sort of like all, there's almost like a homosexual tension between Lugosi and Karloff. Specifically in the scene where there's David Manners and he's sleeping in his room. And then Karloff walks into the room and he's like, well, Vertigast, I know you're expecting me to come in here tonight, right? And he, David Manners looks over and they, there's a moment where they look at each other and Karloff is sort of like, oh, you're not, uh, you're not Bella Lugosi, are you? And then Lugosi opens up the other door and he's like, time for a sandwich. Yeah, time for the, I'm in here, come on. Yeah, and it's like, and, and David Manners is kind of like, oh, what are those guys doing, you know? Oh, Europe. <laughs> So I didn't know, like, that's the really the part where I was like, huh, is there supposed to be this sort of undercurrent there? That's not anything I've ever really thought about in connection with this. Okay. I don't know. I mean, it's pretty clear that, I mean, you know, they're essentially fighting over the, the same woman. Although, I mean, like, Karloff is fighting, he wants to... I mean, in the finished film as we have it, which is what we should go by, not by, like, intentions that were changed during shooting and stuff like that, um, Karloff is fighting for her so that he can sacrifice her on the altar, and Lugosi's fighting for her so he can let her Free and her. her husband get away. Yeah. Like, neither of them are trying to have sex with her. Although, I mean, Karloff's character, sex and death, you know, they kind of go together well. I don't know what he did to all those women in those cases. And I like that that's not explained who the hell all those other women are. Yeah, that, that, yeah. It, there's just all these women around, and we don't know anything about them. It's one of those... Um, so this is, like, right on the edge. Of, like, this is sometimes considered a pre-code movie. It's sometimes considered, like, a, just a production code era movie. Um and like I'm not sure exactly what the cutoff date is, but they definitely were getting notes from Joseph Breen at the production code office uh, about like cuts he wanted to make before they started shooting. And one of the notes that he gave them uh, was that he didn't want too many lingering shots of um, the dead wife in the case. Hmm. And what they ended up doing was there's not really that many lingering shots of her. Right. But after they got that note, they added all those other women. Oh, so they're like, oh, you don't want lingering shots <laughs> yeah. of her. Well, we'll add just that. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, but it adds so much more to. Yeah, because like, what the, the hell has been going it? on in that house for the past like however many years? Yeah. Because like Vertigas says he followed Pearlzig and his wife, like to like Canada and South America, and all these different places, and then finally back to Marmarush. So it's like, what is the timeline there? Yeah, I don't know. So yeah, he definitely was not in prison for those last 15 years. Yeah. He had, he was trying to find him. I think he was in prison until the war ended, probably, and then... Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. And then he just was looking for him all over, and then he went right back to where he started. Which is... So it's like, then how long has Karen been living in that house? Yeah. Exactly. That, yeah, yeah, that's where my mind goes. Like, how old is she? How old was she when Vertigas last saw her? And how long has he been married to her? And it's, it's none of it is good. 
I think it's wonderful that we have... Alright, when, when Lugosi's character sees his dead wife, we've got this great close-up of Lugosi crying, showing actual grief. And he's, like, shocked to see her body, and he's crying actual tears, and it's just a great moment from Lugosi. We don't get moments like that often in his films. He's not usually given the chance to do that. Yeah, absolutely. That, that I mean, that is what makes this movie so great to watch, is to see him in the, in that kind of a real... I, I, I won't say heroic role, because he's not. Yeah. But, like, he's at least the the hero of... He's the one you're want, rooting we, for. That we want to root yeah. for. And, uh, and it's really satisfying to see him, you know, take down Karloff in a pretty brutal and... Uh, yeah. Skins him alive. ...horrific way. Yeah, he's, he winds up skinning him alive, and, of course, we don't really see that happen. We see it kind of in shadow and in silhouette um, of him taking a scalpel to uh, Karloff. And faring the skin from his body. Bit by bit. This is really the only Karloff-Lugosi collaboration where they're kind of on equal grounds. Lugosi might have a little bit of an edge, but they're mm-hmm. both... They're both clearly the stars of this film. Yeah, for and, sure. And, uh, like, the next one they did together was The Raven, and that is Lugosi's... Lugosi is the main character of The Raven, and Karloff is a close second. And right. they both give great performances in it. And in that, Lugosi is, like, the real evil bastard. Yeah. And Karloff is... More sympathetic. Yeah, he's not evil, he's just a bastard. Um, who... he. Karloff's character in The Raven starts out horrible and becomes... He grows sympathetic. He changes the like, character. He's a criminal, right? Yeah. And he wants, like, facial reconstruction. Or he wants to change his face. Yeah, so that he can he doesn't have to hide from the police anymore because he's escaped from prison. Gotcha. Um, and Lugosi is a surgeon, and so he takes to... Uh, Karloff's face again with a scalpel I assume and uh but disfigures him intentionally yeah to keep him under his control right yeah a lot of facial disfigurement and stuff like that in in these films it's one thing that uh David J. Scal writes about in the monster show uh this is going back to something we were just talking about with World War One, and like all the people coming back uh, like with the disfigurements and limitations mm-hmm. and things. Um, that's something that, like, uh, as a society now, if you see somebody who clearly has some sort of, uh, like, disability or they might have some sort of disfigurement or something, like, you just, out of politeness, you tried not to notice it. You try not to react to it. Right. And then there's all these movies in the 30s and 40s where they see somebody who's a little off and shriek yeah. and run away. Like you think of Frankenstein's monster in The Bride of Frankenstein when he sees uh, the shepherd girl by the waterfall. And he just like looks at her and she like flips the fuck out. Yeah. And it's like... And he's asking like, hey, no, no, I'm not trying to hurt you. And Yeah. And in Dracula's Daughter, uh, when uh, the countess in that film, uh, she has like a rather odd looking manservant who's, who doesn't seem to be supernatural in any way. Right. He just and he's has not really, really disfigured. Yeah. No, he's just wearing makeup, I guess, like black lipstick or something. Yeah. And um, I mean, he's imposing. 
Yeah, and like when uh, the main girl in the movie looks at him, she screams. That's her first reaction. Yeah, he and is like... also vaguely uh, ethnically ambiguous. As far like he kind of looks like maybe he's from Asia somewhere. Okay. I guess just based on how he's dressed and how he looks, I feel like he's got like the sharp eyebrows or something. I'm trying to remember. Is he wearing a fez, perhaps? No. Uh, he's got almost like a beetle haircut, but in the 30s. Right, right, okay. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to pin down what yeah. his ethnicity is. Um, but yeah, so I feel like there are a lot of people, like like veterans at the time, who'd be watching these movies who, who might be a little pissed off, I think, about like... You know, they'd be identifying with the monsters, probably. Right, yeah. Like, in, in um, The Mummy, Karloff's character, Imhotep, he's got... Basically, if you saw him, you would just be like, wow, he has some sort of skin condition. Right. And uh, people are somewhat polite to him in that movie, as far as that goes. But they do... It's one of those things where, like, as soon as his back is turned, they're like, that Imhotep guy... He, or not... I'm sorry, Ardith Bay. That Ardith Bay guy, he, uh, he looks pretty... Uh, pretty odd i don't know yeah yeah well i think it's just like a lack of uh exposure to people with conditions like that Mm. because back i mean you know because before that it was like medically people weren't able to survive as long and live as long of a life as they are now i mean now you know with the way that technology is you can have a pretty fulfilling life with all sorts of disabilities and with with media and you know access online with images of all sorts of things you know i think we're just exposed to it more and if you've never heard of or seen anything like it you know suddenly being face to face with somebody with a you know a really awful disfigurement you know would be pretty horrific yeah, doesn't really give you the right to treat them like an animal or something, but yeah, I've had moments where I was taken aback when I wasn't expecting to see someone, um, but I didn't shriek <laughs> right yeah. and yell for help. I was speaking earlier about having seen it many times and uh, always picking up on something new each time, and this time, what I couldn't stop thinking about was uh, the similarities between the 1934 Black Cat and the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Really? And like, I somehow just never caught it before because the, the whole movie of the oh, Black like Cat, the, the two, there's uh, like this... newlyweds coming to this yeah. house. Well, and like, in Rocky Horror, they're like engaged. Okay, and they're like, right, they're yeah. on their way to like tell the professor about their engagement and celebrate and stuff. And they're sort of detoured at this creepy mansion. Right. And there's a... Uh, this kind of odd fellow running things <laughs> who um, they have a pretty messed up night there and it, it ends in a similar way with the castle the castle doesn't I mean spoilers for the Rocky Horror Picture Show um, the castle doesn't blow up it just sort of like takes off and goes out into space and then the um, our heroes are just sort of like left lying there wearing lingerie just thinking back, I'm like, wow, we just had a really messed up night. <laughs> and they'll, they'll never be the same again. There's also even some shots, like the when we first see Karloff's character, and we've got the silhouette behind yeah, I love the that. curtain yeah. of his bed. And that's 
I mean, those two matching scenes of Brad and Janet both being seduced by Dr. Frankenfurter in Rocky Horror are shot in, like, almost the same way. And, I mean, there's all the sex stuff. Because <laughs> it, like, it is one of the... The Black Hat is one of those movies. Uh, like, Orson Welles' Touch of Evil, where at the beginning of the movie, two characters are married. And... The inference one could make at the time is like, oh, well, they just got married. They must be virgins. Mm. So they must be about to have sex. Right. But then, you know, Touch of Evil, there's this explosion in the black cat. There's a bus accident. And they kind of have to, they don't get to have sex yet. Well, and like even right at the, at the beginning of the movie of Black Cat, they're alone in their train compartment. Yeah, they could have they and... uh, done it right there. Then they're like, "Oh, we 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 gotta make room for Bela Lugosi. And there's a look that uh, that Joan gives David Manners that is almost like, "God damn it! Like, don't why are you why are you agreeing to this?" And the thought that came into my mind was like, "Oh, now they you know, they can't you know, get down at all." Doctor Vitas Vertigas, cock blocker. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, like this whole movie happens and. When the movie ends, it, we can just safely assume, like, okay, when they get home or wherever they're going on that train, they're going to have some sex. Like, I'd, I'd like to think that's what Janet Lee and Charlton Heston do at the end of Touch of Evil also. <laughs> and I'm thinking about it right now. <laughs> you know what this movie reminded me of? If anyone has seen the Batman animated series from the early 90s there's probably the most famous and classic episode of the series is called heart of ice and it's about mr freeze and in that episode they basically retold and invented most of what we now consider to be mr freeze's backstory which is that he had this, this his wife was uh came down with this disease and he couldn't prevent it so in order to save her he froze her he sort of cryogenically froze her in the hopes that he could come up with a cure later and in that episode there are shots of his wife in the glass case standing oh. upright and the way that mr freeze is drawn and his voice is so much like boris karloff in this movie where he has like the bald head even though I think in, in Black Cat, he, his head isn't entirely bald. It's just sort of like... Slick. He has like a weird crew cut with like a... Yeah, like a, a widow's peak. Widow's peak. And, yeah, yeah, like a, a... rocking widow's peak. But um, it's very, very short, close to the head. Yeah. Um, so, it, so in silhouette, it looks like the bald head. and uh, It gives him like a square-shaped head sort of in profile. Yeah, and Mr. Freeze just like looks so much like Boris Karloff in that. And the way that his voice is... Um, I, I, in watching the movie, I was like, oh man, there's no way that this was not an inspiration for that. I saw that you bring up Batman because um, one thing that I noticed the very first time that I saw the Black Cat was similarities to a Max Fleischer Superman cartoon hmm. from, I'm not sure if it was the 30s or the 40s. The 40s. Okay. Um, where there's... Oh, it's, it's been a long time. I, it was one of those things I had on, like, one of those cheap public domain tapes right. growing up, so I watched it a lot. Um, there's a character who looks a lot like 
Perlzig, Boris Karloff's character in this, and he's got like this death ray, and Superman is he's like in this like observatory. Yeah, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, and, he's got um, the widow's peak and everything. It was almost like they rotoscoped Perlzig or something. Yeah, and, for sure. And I I'm not sure, but they I feel like they even use a little bit of the. Uh, this this is the first film that we've looked at with the Universal Horrors that has like a lot of music. Mm-hmm. There's a score of yeah. this, and they use like selections from different uh, classical pieces. And um, with Karloff's introduction, we have um, I'm not sure of the piece. It's inspired by a piece by uh, Liszt, who is, is somebody I don't really know much about. I mm-hmm. know that Ken Russell did a movie called Lishtomania, which was sort of like he tried to do Tommy again, but with classical music instead of rock and roll. I'm curious about it. But anyway, uh, I think they use that same piece of music in the Superman cartoon. Hmm. Well, the one piece of classical music used in this, in, in the black cat that is pretty remarkable mm. is Bach's organ toccata that, uh, Boris Karloff has seen playing on the organ. Yeah, and it's a very famous piece that I'm sure, even if you don't re- recognize the name of it, I admittedly had to look it up. You you know it from all sorts of, it's sort of the iconic sort of horror, dark castle organ music. Obviously, it begs the question, like, is this the first instance of the evil villain playing on the organ, that song? Yeah, I can't think of um, an instance before the Black Cat where that music is used like that, like in a a horror movie, or, well, in any movie, actually. Right. I mean, maybe it's possible that, like, um, it was used to accompany some silent films. Mm Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Like, I could easily see it playing along with like the phantom of the opera or something and and that piece of music actually when i worked at the house of frankenstein wax museum in lake george that would be playing along with the phantom of the opera exhibit so i always associate it it because the phantom of the opera he's seen playing an organ yeah and so you and you just sort of fill in the glass you're like oh that's the song that he's playing right but it's not at least in that version i mean it's silent but he's still i mean i feel like we're led to believe that he's playing his own composition. The, was it Don Juan Triumphant or whatever it's called? Right, right. Gotcha. But I still just, when I see him, when I see the Phantom of the Opera playing... Yeah, you hear that song. I, yeah, because that's just... It makes perfect sense. That was on... I had one of those, like, uh, audio cassettes of, like, just random Halloween music type stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was weird. It had, like, the Monster Mash and Thriller and that and that <laughs> song. And some other stuff, too. I don't remember. But, right. Uh, I feel like, you know, a lot of people would probably even think like, oh, isn't that like in Dracula or something? You know, you mm-hmm. just think of Dracula's castle, you know, with Dracula playing the organ in that song. It's funny how just all of those sort of iconic moments from these different movies kind of just blend together into this sort of like quintessential horror moment. Yeah. Dracula playing that song on an organ in his castle is like something that we never see, but... I think it might be a song that Dr. Fibes plays on his organ in The Abominable Dr. Fibes. Hmm. Speaking of organs, (laughs) 
Did you happen to notice uh, who was playing the organ later on during the satanic ritual? And it would make sense if you didn't, because you never see his face. No, I did not. That is an early appearance by John Carradine. No kidding. He's just got his back to the camera playing the organ as a Satanist. That's awesome. Yeah. That is really cool. Yeah. That it's... Wow, so it's not only the first time that Carlock and Lugosi are in a movie together. John Carradine gets in there, too. Yeah. That's great. And I think that was before he went by the name John Carradine. I don't remember what his name... He wasn't billed, because, I mean, this is back when only a few people got on that cast list at the end. Right. Because a good cast is worth repeating. But one person who did get on that list is Henry Armetta and um, Albert Conti. Do you remember who they were? Oh. <laughs> I th- yeah, I, th- I can take a guess. There's this yeah, there's one a moment scene that sort of that like I wanted to bring up with the rest of it. About, yeah. yeah, there's a scene where these two bumbling police officers show up, uh, investigating the bus crash that occurred, and it's right smack dab in the middle of the movie, and it tone tonally, I mean, it flies in the face of everything else in the movie. Yeah, it's the one. Re- I mean. I feel like it's the one moment where it's clearly daytime also. Yeah, yeah. We're, yeah, it's like the next day and... Because uh... the rest of the movie is just this, like, everlasting night. Yeah. Sort of. I mean, even when they first uh, when they first go to bed, it shows the clock and it's already, like, 4.30 in the morning when they're first going to bed. Mm. But yeah, they show up and they do their little comic bit. <laughs> it's some, yeah, it really is just, like, this, like, sort of weak version of... Uh... I don't even know. There's like a they're arguing routine. Yeah, I guess. Just arguing about whose hometown makes the best tourist location, or the, or <laughs> yeah. the place to visit. And it's funny because it's just like all of our other characters are kind of almost with the audience in that moment of just like, what? Are you, who are these guys? Like, what, <laughs> did we just step into another movie? Like, yeah. what is this? And you can almost see it in like every, all the other actors' faces. Like, uh, <laughs> what? And Lugosi has this kind of smile on his face, like he's indulging them, like, okay, if you have to joke like this, all right, well, <laughs> fine. I like to think that there is another movie that would cross over with that, where it's like, you could watch this uh, this completely other movie where we're following these police officers, or maybe they're the supporting characters of this other thing. Oh, and they're like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and they just sort of and like... And they, you know, and yeah. you, could watch, you could watch this other movie that is just complete, like, I don't know, romantic screwball comedy or something. <laughs> with these two bumbling police officers and then they're just like we gotta go check on this uh this bus crash uh, you, know? <laughs> you could cut to this and it would fit right into the movie maybe there's like all these films that universal made in 1934 and they did like one in each genre mm-hmm. and those two characters show up and i i haven't seen many 1934 universal films yeah so like maybe they're uh, maybe they do that they're out there that'd be pretty good that'd be pretty cool <laughs> i think actually i think the only other uh 1934 Universal film I can think of right now is Imitation of Life, the uh, the John Stahl movie. Um, which that's a it's a pretty good movie. That's the one that was remade in the 50s with Susan Conner, who's the daughter of Paul Conner and Lupita Tovar. I talked about with the Spanish Dracula last uh, last episode. Uh, Imitation of Life was a very expensive film uh, that Universal made, and uh, its follow up, Magnificent Obsession, also remade in the 50s was even more expensive um and that was actually those films along with a film called sutter's gold 
and James Whale's musical Showboat. They were, they were all these very expensive movies that caused uh, Universal to take out a loan just to sort of cover themselves. And when they took out that loan, uh, unfortunately, they had like a 90-day period where they didn't have to pay it back. And they were hoping, beyond hope, that they that the loan would not be called on like after the 90 days, that they'd get a little more time, like wait for those movies to come out and become hits and stuff and get the money. But uh, that's not how it worked. Mm. And the company they took the loan out from said, nope, we own Universal now. And that deal pretty much ended that first wave, uh, that 1931, 1936, of like basically when, well, 30 to 36 would be when uh, Carl Lemley Jr. was head of production. And after that, Uncle Carl Lemley, uh, he was put as like chairman of the board, which was sort of like in name only gotcha. kind of position. And Carl Lemley Jr. was just fired. Out. Yeah. And it became a whole different universal after 1936. And the last of the, as far as you know, as far as their horror films go, the last film of that era was uh, Dracula's, Dracula's daughter. daughter. Yeah. yeah, kind of bookends Dracula and Dracula's daughter that horror period. Because after the Black Cat, there was the Raven. There was uh, the Bride of Frankenstein, the Werewolf of London, Invisible Ray, Dracula's daughter. Hmm. And there. Are, there's very few bad... Fi- Actually, I don't think there's any real bad films Yeah, there, in you, that first group. Yeah, there's not any that are, like, total stinkers. Yeah, there's a, um As you get later on with Universal Horrors, like, in the 40s, there are some where... If you're just showing them to a random person... Mm-hmm. Like, like if somebody's like, Oh, I hear you really like Universal Horror movies. Let's watch one. You probably wouldn't pick some of the ones from the 40s. Right. But I would say... Uh, Almost any of the ones from 31 to 36 I could see uh, showing to somebody. Yeah. So after the uh, Universal, would you call it a sale? It wasn't really a sale. It was a hostile takeover almost. I would say takeover. Takeover works. After the Universal takeover in 1936, what was the next, uh, what, what was the start of, phase two as far as the horror films go well aside from a handful of those weird like pseudo horror films that are often marketed as horror films today like night key which and... are more like <laughs> gangster mobster sort of like mystery yeah films, like, all sorts of they just um, happen to have actors like lugosi or karloff or yeah one of the other stars that the the one that really officially kicks off the second wave would be Son of Frankenstein. Son of Frankenstein. Which is another Karloff Lugosi collaboration. Right. It was the final film that uh, Karloff played the monster in. Yeah. And it was the first time that Lugosi had uh, crossed over into the Frankenstein uh, franchise as Igor. Who. The character of Igor has kind of gone on to be almost to not as synonymous with the Frankenstein. Uh, legend as the monster or dr frankenstein himself yeah which i mean spoiler alert for all of the universal frankenstein films post 1942 (laughs) but the character of igor pretty much becomes synonymous with the character of frankenstein's monster because his brain (laughs) is literally transplanted into the body of the monster it's the perfect karloff lugosi collaboration (laughs) 
where Lugosi's brain ends up being in Karloff's character's body, even if it's no longer played by Karloff. Yeah, at that point, it had changed <laughs> over to... Uh, who else played the monster? It was Lon Chaney Jr. was in there. In The Ghost of Frankenstein. Then there was Glenn Strange. Yep, he played him in House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And Lugosi played the monster. Which made perfect sense at the time in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, because at the end of the previous film, Frankenstein's monster had Lugosi's character's brain in it. And, mm-hmm. you know, they wrote the part for Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman where that character would be speaking, so it makes sense, like, oh, well, Lugosi is going to be this character, because he's going to speak like Lugosi. And then they cut out all the dialogue, and uh, now Lugosi's performance is just very confusing. But it's still probably my favorite universal horror film. Son of Frankenstein. Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. Oh, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, right, yeah. yes. No, Lugosi's uh, performance in Son of Frankenstein is one of his best. Yeah. And that's the last time that he, I would say, dominates Karloff's performance in one of their collaborations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Karloff in, in Son of Frankenstein, the character of the monster kind of regressed a bit. Because in Bride of Frankenstein, he had gained the ability to speak and was becoming more human. And then in Son of Frankenstein, he was sort of just back to being more of a mindless brute. Yeah, but... I mean, he still had heart and we our sympathy and stuff like that. Yeah, but there wasn't as much of like a character development for the monster in that movie. No, not really. Um, and it sort of gave us a preview of um, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, and Abigail meet Frankenstein, where the character is basically just this guy that lies on a slab for a while and then gets up and goes for a walk at the very end of the movie. <laughs> right. It's a Frankenstein movie. <laughs> um. Yeah, so what really marks the the difference between what what what's the big difference between the first set of universal horror films and the second set? What are some of the things that changed in the uh in the takeover? The the later films are a little less twisted. I would say maybe a little lighter. Uh so there's still some dark themes in there. Um one thing that definitely features in um, many of the 40s films that wasn't necessarily there in the 30s films is um, alright so the, the sort of characters that David Manners would play in the early 30s they sort of become like the template for like lead characters in universal films of the 40s where it's like oh we should all be thinking like this guy like this is a bunch of nonsense right. what is this malarkey uh, there's they're more American in a way. They still have some. Most of the Frankenstein films still have that weird, like Germanic fairy tale sort of atmosphere to them. Uh, but a lot of the films, you know, they'll t- even if they take place in England, it still feels like a small town in America. Right. Um, and you know, like you know, wartime America, everyone sort of, you know, mom and apple pie and whatnot. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, I, just, I feel like they're, um... You think it was a bit of a reflection of the lighter tone, maybe a reflection of the times, is be, because we were entering in this, into World War II, the nation kind of needed to be less focused on the dark and more focused on a lighter outlook? 
They, that, that could be. Maybe audiences didn't want to see more sadistic characters like Pearlzig and were more interested in uh, seeing more David Manners. <laughs> seeing more of David Manners. Uh, I mean, well, their big well, horror franchise in the 40s is, I feel like, is like the Wolfman because that was kind of the, the first. Yeah. Because like, it was a brand new character, essentially. Yeah, played by Lon Chaney Jr., the boy next door. He's this like big, hulky guy. He's big, big goof. Yeah. Big old goof. Um,. And he's, he's basically like an everyman who's just caught up in this horrific experience. Um, but, I mean, you know, you wonder if, if they had put out more twisted, more disturbing films like they did in the 30s, in the 40s, maybe if they gave him a chance, audiences would have gone to see those too. But right. I think a lot of it might have also been, you know, the production code was just taking off right as the universal horror films of thirties were sort of like beginning to die out. They didn't really die out. They just abruptly stopped. Cause I mean, one of the last ones they did was bride of Frankenstein, which was huge. Yeah. And so, cause like uh, what was the, what was the time between Dracula's daughter and son of Frankenstein? Just three years, three years. But that's like, you know, three years is a long time to just hit the brakes yeah. on this friend, on this franchise that was just gain, you know, becoming, just just becoming a franchise with Bride of Frankenstein. It's yeah. a big hit. And um but like by the 40s, I mean, the production code was just entrenched. And there was also uh around the time that the Black Cat came out actually there was the formation of the Catholic Legion of Decency which could give films a a condemned rating. Like, you know, the MPAA in the 60s could give you an X. Right. In the 30s and 40s, and may, I'm not even sure if they're still around. They they were still going in the 60s, I know. Um, <laughs> but, like, the Catholic Legion of Decency, they could say, oh, this film is condemned by us. And, you know, if you were a Catholic and you would go to church, your priest would say, these are the movies you can't see if you want to be a Catholic. Wow. That's a big chunk of the American audience. Right. <laughs> that uh, is just like, oh, shit, if I go to see this movie, it's a sin. Which, on one level, it's like... Ooh, if I go see this movie, it's a sin. Yeah. John Waters was raised Catholic. He always went out of his way to see the condemned films. But, you know, uh, the studios the whole, didn't really there were probably a lot of that. There, there were probably a lot of theaters that wouldn't carry condemned films. <laughs> yeah. And if they did, they would, you know, edit random chunks of them out and, like, mm-hmm. splice them all to pieces. So come 1941... Universal returns to the Edgar Allan Poe stories, and they decide, you know, we did the Black Cat once, but it wasn't really based on the Edgar Allan Poe story. Why don't we give it another go? And so they did the Black (laughs) Cat again, and this time still very very loosely based on the Edgar Allan Poe story but a little more a little closer because yeah. there is a black cat being walled up at one point and a black cat that is more central to more of an more of an image throughout the film yeah because I mean there is a black cat in the in in the 34 version and you do see it throughout the movie but it's there isn't really much focus given to it yeah and in the 34 version there might be two black cats or one may have regenerated itself. Right. Which, yeah, we didn't really talk about that. The fact that Bor- uh, Bela Lugosi 
kills a cat off screen by throwing like a knife or something at it and uh we hear its horrible death cry <laughs> and then all the other characters just go about their business like well that was kind of messed up <laughs> but not really showing any sort of reaction to it at all yeah and then there's just another black cat around yeah and yeah you wonder because they specifically mentioned before that there are these legends that the black cat can has the ability to has nine lives and they'll come back from the dead or whatever so it's left ambiguous as to whether or not that cat is actually coming back from the dead or if uh Perlzig is just stalking his house full of black cats just to fuck with vertigast and there's really no such mystery in the 1941 Black Cat because there are tons upon tons of assloads upon assloads of cats. The cats everywhere in this movie. And poor Bela has to, has to <laughs> uh, wrangle them. Yeah. <laughs> so the 1941 version of the Black Cat is has nothing to do with the 34 version, other than the fact that they're credited as. Uh, the black cat as suggested by Edgar Allan Poe. Other than that, the plot is completely different. 41 version involves a family of uh, upper class... Well, it's a really rich family, but the, the, the matriarch is this grandmother who is almost on her deathbed. She's about to die, and she has her will... And it's one of those sort of like, you know, who's going to get the, uh, who's going to be left the estate and all the money. And it, it sort of plays out a lot like, uh, you know, murder mystery, sort of a whodunit. It's very much like Clue almost. Yeah. Um, it's just one of those like old dark house comedy mystery movies. Yeah. And this, but, <laughs> and the big difference between this and, and the 34 version is that this is, would you consider it a screwball comedy? It, like, it, I wouldn't consider it a screwball. It comedy. almost wants to be. There's not because there's not there much of like the romance as like screwball comedies might have. It, it's a screwy comedy. It's a, screw, <laughs> it's a screwy comedy. There you go. You've got Hugh Herbert doing his little shtick. Yeah, he was a character actor. Yeah, um, and every, you know everybody kind of had their bit uh, that they would milk for an entire career like henry armetta one of the little comic relief guys in the black cat he his thing was he didn't he doesn't really do it in the black cat except like slightly he'll do it but i know that um he'll show up in like laurel and hardy movies like he was in uh uh fratty avalo the devil's brother with them and he does like this little sideways walk thing <laughs> and that was his shtick he would go he would turn to the side and he'd sort of uh, wobble a little bit and then walk sideways and that was Henry Arbett's <laughs> shtick and then uh, Hugh Herbert his shtick was going uh, hoo hoo as an antique dealer Mr. Penny what do you think of this road oh I, I hate to meet the worms that made those holes what is that where oh over there that's a crematory crematory yeah for the cats come on I'll show you the cats Sure, everything around here is for the cats. That's why the place is going to the dog. Oh, that's pretty bad. I'm glad I didn't say that. Forgive me, Gil. Sure. I'd forgive you for anything. I'll make this up. I get it, I get it. Which apparently was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember seeing like a Looney Tunes cartoon or something where there was like an animated version of him just doing that. Um, 
and he 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 pops up in like small roles in various movies of the time and he makes that noise and what's odd about his being in this movie is like he's gets a lot of screen time yes <laughs> but he has almost nothing to do with the plot at hand but he has a lot of stuff to do but he has tons of stuff to do it's almost as if we're watching two different movies at once where there's on the one side there's this story about this callous family who they just they only care about their grandmother because she has all the money and there's all the infighting and there's the questions about like who's gunning for the money and who's trying to get the upper hand on each other who's having the affair and all that kind of stuff and then there's this other movie that we cut back to every once in a while where we've got this hugh hubert hugh hubert uh bumbling his way through this mansion uh trying to assess the value of all these various antiques because he wants to sell uh all of that stuff because presumably the grandmother's going to die they're going to she's going to bequeath the mansion to one of the people in this family and then they'll sell the estate because nobody wants to live there because it's just the estate was essentially built and expanded for all these cats that run rampant throughout the the estate yeah so they want to sell it off and we've got Hugh Hubert and the main Hugh character. Herbert. Was that? Hugh Herbert. Hugh Herbert. I always want to say Hugh Hubert. Which, I wonder why. Hugh <laughs> <laughs> Hubert. Yeah, Hugh, exactly. <laughs> um, and the main character who I, what's what's his name? The actor? Uh, the actor and the character. I'm not sure if the character the actor is Broderick Crawford. Okay, we'll call him Broderick Crawford. Okay, good. The That's actor. what I was. Um, he's the main character and he's basically like the middleman between... It's like a real estate agent, essentially. Yeah, like at the beginning of the movie, they show up and um, somebody basically contacted them because it looked like the old woman was like about to die. So they show up thinking that she's died. Yeah. And, and then like, oh, she's still holding on. That they're going to sell the house. They're going to sell all the antiques. So. Not quite dead yet. Yeah. So Roger Crawford is like, brings along Hugh Hubert. <laughs> I'm just going to call, keep calling sure. him that. Um, or just make the noise every time you want to say his name. <laughs> no, because it was annoying in the movie after a, after a while, and I don't want to annoy our audience. Um, because he, you know, it's it literally is like if he's on screen, like you just or you just wait for him to do it because you know he's going to do it. Yeah. Um, but essentially, it's like this story. So like, Broderick Crawford gets mixed up in the goings on of this family, and Hugh Herbert is just off bumbling his way through the mansion without really anything else to do with the story. Yeah, he barely notices that anything else is happening. Yeah, that he's just concern him consumed with looking at these uh, antiques. And I, he, he just has all these little sketches and bits almost. And I did really like the one where I forget how it starts, but like mm-hmm. something breaks and right. he has to that's, fix yeah. it with this one thing, but then the thing he's going to fix it with is broken, so he has to get this other thing. And it it's turns into this yeah, whole he, spiel. He, sp- he accidentally spills, like, ink on the carpet. So he tries to get the ink off. So he has this, like... Spot remover. Canister of some sort of spot remover. Yeah. But he can't get the lid open, so he's going to use some pliers. But the pliers are stuck, so he needs to oil the pliers. But the oil can is, like, jammed, so he has to get a little wire to, like, unjam the... Uh, the oil thing but like he can't do that because of this other thing and so it and just we cut turns to another in... scene and we cut back later and he's got like even more this stuff chain out. of like 20 different items he needs and to, um, um yeah and i 
I love that. I don't know. That's, that's <laughs> the one bit in yeah. my mind that I'm like that. You know, that's the the cleverest part. Um, but still, it's just sort of like we just take these breaks every once in a while from the story and from anything that resembles a horror movie to just go to this guy breaking stuff and fumbling and bumbling. And then when we go back to the story from like this, you know, this fun bumbling thing. Ah, uh, we get like, I mean, this woman is set on fire. Yeah. In a very like graphic for 1941 moment, where she just like accidentally gets set on fire and runs out, and there's some messed up stuff going on. People yeah, being we... cremated and cats being cremated. Well, a cat, cat being poisoned. A cat being poisoned, and we see what looks like. I mean, they either it was either an actual dead cat. Or it was a cat who was knocked unconscious somehow. Which is what I'm choosing to believe. I'm choosing to believe they gave him some, you know, regular, standard, safe, uh, veterinary uh, anesthesia that just knocked or, him unconscious. I mean, and... trained cats as opposed to trained dogs, they usually have, like, their one thing they do. Like, dogs, you can train to do a bunch of things because, mm-hmm. you know, they're very obedient. Um, but if you need a cat in a movie, you need to get a bunch of cats and each of them has their one thing they do. Maybe they got a cat who's just really good at sleeping. Yeah. Yeah, they just yeah. got a lazy cat. They just got a lazy cat. It wasn't a dead cat. Yeah, they didn't drug a cat or anything like that. It's just a <laughs> Ho- lazy cat. Hollywood back then, they wouldn't kill a cat, right? No, 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 no. No. Yeah. It was, it was a perfectly safe cat. Yeah. Um, But it's, it's you know, it's kind of hard to watch because, I mean, it looks like a dead... I mean, it is like... It looks like a dead cat and they're carrying it and they, you know, they cremate it. We don't actually see it burning up or anything like that, but we see its lifeless form. Um, and as disturbing as that moment is, that is when, um, I mean, Broderick Crawford's character, he kind of sums up the, he's like the Lon Chaney Jr. type. He's like the big burly American guy, um, the combination of aw shucks and no nonsense somehow. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to sum it up. <laughs> but there, like the moment when he realizes the cat has been poisoned, he knocks the glass away from the old woman is when we're like, all right, this guy is not an idiot. Right. He can actually be helpful. Yeah. And he does have some moments in the movie where I didn't really find him that, like, I, the movie starts off, I'm not a big Broderick Crawford fan. Um, so, like, I'm ready to be annoyed with him. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's got some good sympathetic moments. He's got some good acting moments. This this is eight years before All the King's Men, which he won his uh, Best Actor Oscar for. Um and then the year after that, he was a similar burly asshole in uh, George Cukor's Born Yesterday. But he like those those two characters, you know, are not really likable at all. This early in his career, I I can get behind him. Yeah, he was serviceable. Yeah. Um, serviceable. That's a. Good... <laughs> he was workmanlike. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he was used well. Yeah, uh, it's just kind of a, I don't know, it's a hard movie for me to kind of like wrap my head around because there are so much, so many different tones at play. It doesn't feel like a very cohesive movie. And then, like Basil Rathbone is in it, and this is a couple years after, I mean, he was a big part of Universal's return to horror. He was the son of Frankenstein, right. the son of Frankenstein, and then he was in Tower of London as Richard III. And, you know, he was seen as like the new horror guy, and he'd also... By this point, he'd also uh, he'd played Sherlock Holmes twice 
in film in Hound of the Baskervilles, The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes. And this is right before he started his series at Universal of Sherlock Holmes films because he did those films for 20th Century Fox. And there's like a, a quick reference to like Basil Rathbone's character says something. And I think Broderick Crawford's character says, this guy thinks he's Sherlock Holmes. Right, right? yeah. Um, which... So that was like an in-joke of the day. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, but Rathbone is given not a lot to do, and he doesn't really do it well. No, he's just, just like, kind of there. He doesn't, he doesn't really... want to be in this movie. You can clearly, tell. Clearly, yeah, clearly. And um, Gail Sondergaard, who we talked about in our episode on The Bluebird, because she played the cat that becomes human in the bluebird. So here she is in a house of cats the following year. How about that? She said in the interview that she did not want to do the film because she felt it was beneath her. She used those words and you can kind of see it. She's which character was she playing? She was the maid. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, um, she's clearly like, a kind of like evil scenery chewing villainous. Mm -hmm. But she, I mean, you can also tell she's, I mean, it is a comedy, but she's not taking it as seriously as she even should a comedy. Yeah. I mean, it's so, it, it feel like it can't decide if it wants to be a comedy. And none or... of the actors got together and decided. They're all in different movies. Totally. That's the, that's the problem. There's Alan, a very young Alan Ladd at just a couple of years or a year, I think before this gun for hire sort of made him like a big star um 41 when he did the black cat that's the same year he has like maybe two lines at the very end of citizen kane where you don't even see his face in that he's like in the shadows with a pipe or something one of the reporters and um in this film he's just like the angry son yeah and he's very unlikable (laughs) he's like this whiny guy well Uh, all of the family members are kind of unlikable yeah because there's this sweet old woman who just loves her cats and her entire family is just like, you know, there's none of them that are really sympathetic towards her yeah. or like, if you feel like they care anything about her. And, uh, even the, even the, the, the girl who is kind of the main, she's the love interest of Broderick Crawford, at least. Right. And like, they've known each other their whole lot. Like Broderick Crawford's character apparently is, he's a local boy. He's, he played in, he used to play in their yard or something. Yeah. Um, even her, it doesn't really come across as like, oh, she's, she's like the good egg, you know? Yeah. It's like, you don't even really feel that. It's like the old lady kind of favors her because she's not dishonest. Like she's open about like, yeah, I want this money. Kind of. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she's, she's the only one who's willing to admit it. You know, yeah. you, it's just like, it's, it's, so it's really weird. Um, it's, it's really makes me want to rewatch the movie Greedy where um it's from like 95 i think uh i remember watching it as a child like renting it on vhs i remember being excited because phil hartman's in a movie and it was like (laughs) kirk douglas is this old guy and he's got all these relatives played by like phil hartman and ed begley jr and all these people uh bob balaban uh who are all trying to get his money just waiting for him to die and sucking up to him and then uh, he has like this like uh i think nephew that sort of like estranged from the family played by Michael J. Fox and the relatives get him to come in and try and swindle him out of the money and stuff. And I remember it as a very enjoyable film. Every now and then I'll go online and look at reviews of it. I don't think anybody else felt that way at the time, but I was a kid. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, like I said before, this movie really reminded me of clue. Yeah. And I think the difference there is like 
clue knows what it wants to be. Yes. You know, it is just like, it, it, so it, 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 but it straddles that line of like, it's a murder mystery, there are people dying, so there's that whole, I guess you could call it horror element to it, but it's fully whole hog in the comedy department. This movie feels like it's, it, it's not, it doesn't really go all in on that. It still is like trying to be kind of like a, kind of like a dark uh, murder mystery while still just being like this lighthearted campy thing. And so these campy moments come out of nowhere where it's like uh, Hugh Herbert finds himself alone with the maid in her room after uh, everyone else has left and she offers him something to drink. That offers her some tea. And so she makes the tea for him and she mixes in all these kinds of like super strong sleeping remedy or something. She's got the cup of, of tea and it has like the dry ice effect in it and all the smoke is pouring out. He takes one sip of it and then it does this like jump cut where he disappears, like he's speeding away. And it comes, it's just sort of awkward because there's no other moment like it in the movie. Yeah, it's like it becomes a cartoon for a moment. Yeah. But the whole rest of the movie doesn't like jive with that at all really you know it's weird um one thing we have not really spoken about with the 1941 the black cat is bella lugosi yes <laughs> now what does he do he's we there said cat wrangler but aside from that he's like the groundskeeper of this mansion and uh he does a lot of staring through windows he likes to stare at people through windows and he likes to uh be surly I guess. I like that his name is Eduardo. Eduardo. Yeah. And he's got this weird look to him. He's got the crazy mustache. Like he's supposed to be like Mexican or Spanish or something? Yeah, I don't know what's going on there. Um, <laughs> and he has like crazy eyebrows. But he's got this great moment where he, he's... Alright, so he's got... This, I, I already know what moment you're talking about because it's like it's yeah. It's he got this moments. suspicious bag, and they're like, "Hey, you can't run off with that bag there." And it turns out it's a bag of cats. Well, it's like it's pouring rain. It's like downpouring, yeah. and it's like at night. And Broderick, or yeah, Broderick Crawford looks out the window and sees Eduardo loading in this bag into the back of this cart, and it looks like there could be a body in there. And he runs down. He jumps out of the off of the balcony and crashes on the ground and runs to him. And he goes to open up the door on the cart, and Bella goes to like, "No, don't, don't do it," you know. And he's like, "Out of the way!" And then he opens it up, and all these cats come pouring out of the back of the of the cart. And he's like, "Oh, now they're all out in the rain. I just collected them up, and now all the poor cats are out in the rain." <laughs> that was the that was that was my favorite part. Eduardo, what have you done with Elaine? I haven't seen her. Yeah, well, I'll look for myself. Please, please, don't, don't open the door. I wanted to take them to the barn, and now they're all out in the rain again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Why don't you keep your nose out of other people's business? Yeah. Why don't I? If there's one moment that you had to show somebody from this movie, it would be Bella Lugosi going, here, kitty, kitty, here, kitty, kitty, kitty. <laughs> and it just, it kind of makes you wish, I mean, he did a few more films like this, like One Body Too Many, um, where he was just like, and The Gorilla, uh, which is a couple years before this, uh, with the Ritz brothers, where he was just, you know, this random servant 
who you're supposed to think is like this killer and uh, often they would be comic but he didn't really get that many funny things to do mm-hmm. and uh, I wish he'd had more opportunities like that but I, going through Lugosi's career I feel like that's the main thing that I always end up thinking is oh I wish he'd gotten more chances to do this I wish he got more chances to do this because like right he could do a lot of th- if you compare Eduardo to Igor to Vertigast to Dracula those are very different characters Oh, for sure. But he always just was seen as, like, this one thing. Yeah, one note kind of yeah. thing. Um, it's just unfortunate that he doesn't get much screen time, you know? Yeah. I wish he had more to do and less... Woohoo! And he's murdered at the end of the movie. Yeah, horrible. He's, he's like... <laughs> he's the patsy, and so he's, like, killed by the the actual uh, murderess. Yeah. Uh, to basically frame him. And he's just this, and it's just like he was the one guy who was like loyal to the grandmother and to yeah. the estate. He loved the cats, and even in the will, he gets shafted. He gets like five thousand bucks or something like that. Yeah, five hundred something like that. It's like, and everybody else is like, "To you, my grandson who hates me, I'll give one hundred thousand dollars." And to you, you know, all these people who just despise her and just want her dead. Even the maid, who. It was probably loyal, but she seems like she was biding her time and was just waiting for this to happen. And she was she she reveled in being in control over the situation mm-hmm. when it's determined that the only way that anyone is going to get her the 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 money is until after all of the cats are dead, or the maid is no longer caring for the estate. Um, and Eduardo, the poor guy who's actually out there caring for the cats when they're in the rain. He's the one who gets the shaft in the will. He's the he's the one who really deserves the estate. Yeah, watching that scene uh, this time around, while I'm like in the middle of reading Greg Manks, uh, Karloff and Lugosi uh, book, um, it reminded me of like you know each time uh, Mank talks about like the making of different Lugosi films, they'll go through like how much each person was paid. And they'll say like all these different things, and like sort of like towards the bottom, it's like oh, and they through Bela a few cents like it's just, he always that was like real life too he always got kind of shafted in that regard yeah it's just like it, and it's kind of baffling because it's like they had no qualms of like advertising movies on his name even yeah. if he just was in two or three scenes yeah and then um what's weird is the trailer that's on the DVD that we watched uh, for this is like a reissue trailer from the late 40s and that's after Alan Ladd becomes a star. So he becomes, like, fourth build or something. Like, Lugosi's still up there. Right. Um, even though his, you know, his star was waning at the time. Uh, but, like, you know, it's like, Broderick Crawford, Anne Gwynn, Bella Lugosi, Alan Ladd. And it's like, if you go in, like, oh, I'm going to watch a Lugosi and Alan Ladd movie, yeah. you're going to be sorely disappointed. You get, yeah, you get maybe five lines between the both of them. Yeah. The main set in the film... Um, I don't know if it looked familiar to you. It, I can't think of all the different films they used it for, but I mean, like, that... At a lot of studios, they would just, like, they'd build sets for something, and then it was just there. Right. And then that was, like, everybody's living room. Right. <laughs> and, like, I'm pretty sure that, like, th- that, like, main staircase and stuff, uh, I think it was in, like, The Ghost of Frankenstein at, like, uh... Dr. Okay. F- at Dr. Frankenstein's house. And maybe... Was it The Wolfman? Was that the Talbot estate... I mean, I'll tell you, it 
definitely seemed familiar when I was watching it. Yeah. And I just thought it, I didn't think anything of it really. A lot of them, and they're, the music too, they always reuse music from a lot of that. I know that like the opening music was from Tower of London. Um, and I feel like some of the later cues might have been from like Son of Frankenstein. The, for a lot of the horror movies, they would still kind of like do little pieces of music that they would add for each one. But for the most part, they would just keep reusing all these like older pieces that like as the series i guess you'd call it like went on you'd start to hear the same notes the same way all the time Mm -hmm. but at the same time that's like it's cheap and i get why they're doing it but it's it's kind of nice because i guess if uh you know if if you follow a studio for a while you'll see stuff like that like oh they're using these character actors for this and they're using these same sets and um it almost begins to be like oh it's like i'm home i'm watching my universal monster movies and we're we're seeing that stairway it's a house style yeah it's like a and and the hallmarks of that are present yeah i get that i was just thinking about hugh herbert again (laughs) and just how interesting it is that like you know who? What would be who would be the modern day equivalent of of an actor like that, who kind of pops up in different movies, just playing himself essentially, just doing that shtick? Because I can think of like, um, like Will Ferrell maybe, but he's kind of a leading guy. You know, he's not really like. You know, and he when he he's one of those guys like Adam Sandler, like when he chooses to act, he can act. Yeah, like, and, and um, he, yeah. And he doesn't necessarily always do the same thing. Like some, like in the in the '90s, Paulie Shore could kind of be seen that way. But he was always one of the leads. He was never just like right. Like here's all this other movie going on, and you know. <laughs> yeah, but that's sort of. I mean, we don't really have like, that many of Carrot like, Top. I don't know. Like, is he in movies? He's not though. But I mean, yeah, he, yeah it's just I don't. And then I thought maybe like there's. There, you know, there are actors like Michael Sarah, who kind of play. Oh my God, he is Hugh Herbert. He's like, Hoo-hoo. hi guys, I'm Michael Sarah. <laughs> does he ever do? Does he does a hoo hoo? He doesn't do a hoo hoo, but like, I don't know. His voice is he's got kind of a high voice. I don't know. All right, the way Michael Sarah is played on SNL by whoever played him on SNL—that's mm. what I'm thinking of now, I guess, more than Michael Sarah himself, who's not a horrible actor. No. Yeah. <laughs> No, Michael Cera is great, but he's really easy to make fun of. Well, yeah, well, because he kind of, he ha, you know, he has certain roles he's suited for. Yes. <laughs> um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. You know, I just recently watched through Arrested Development again, and he is fantastic on that show, like really, really great. Um, and I think a lot of people kind of dismiss him because he's just doing the Michael Cera thing, but he really is like you know he was young on that show when he started mm-hmm. he's holding his own against everybody else his comedic timing is really fantastic and from that same show i feel like jason bateman has his thing he does where um a lot of it is facial expression so it's really hard to convey in a podcast <laughs> right, um yeah. but he also kind of is like hmm a lot and just sort of like I really don't know how to describe it. Do you know what I mean? Like the Jason Bateman way of acting where you're yeah. just kind of like yeah. reacting to the to the person who's speaking like, hmm. Like, right. I, I know what you mean. Yeah. I'm sorry if our listeners are not getting the full effect from <laughs> thinking about it. Um, 
I mean, everybody's got their thing. But not to the point where it's like, oh, <laughs> you're going to see a Michael Cera movie, so you know at some point you're, he's going to turn to the audience and wink and go, Hoo-hoo, because that's what we're, that's his thing, you know. And Curly is going to go, nick, 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 nick. yeah, exactly. But I mean, even with that, it's different because it's like you're going to a three stooge. They're they're characters that you're going to see, you know, the yeah. three stooges. It's not like the actor just plays these different roles and just does the same joke in every it's, it would be like if mike myers in every movie he pops up and he's just like oh behave you know <laughs> yeah i was gonna say swing but all right or that yeah <laughs> or jim carrey all righty then right <laughs> i say in my worst jim carrey ever i don't know what the hell that was i just did or uh what, oh, what's the will smith one um i've got to get me one of these was that Independence Day? And Men in Black. He oh, says in so I haven't seen Men in Black. Which is why it uh, okay it sticks out of my mind because he says it in both those movies, and it's like, oh, okay, you know, he's doing the thing, he's doing the Will Smith thing. Oh, and there are several movies where Schwarzenegger says that he will be back. Yeah, you know, I guess you could you could kind of consider that to be a thing because it's like. It's because he says that even outside of like the Terminator movie. Yeah, he says it in the Running Man. Yeah, it becomes, like... <laughs> you know, it's like it, that's his thing, you know. Yeah. I'll be back. But again, he is like a star. He's not this yeah, guy he... who shows up in movies to say, I'll be back, and then <laughs> right. goes away. Yeah. <laughs> and then at the end of the movie, he's like, I told you. Like, I don't know. <sighs> yeah, he, he turns, he breaks the fourth wall at the end, right? He turns to the audience. Hugh Herbert at the end of oh he met Schwarzenegger and uh, um, isn't yeah because he sees the cat with the kitten he sees the yeah there's a, at the very end, the last shot of the movie is a cat with a bunch of cute little baby kittens and he turns to the to the audience and says who put who put him in this picture yeah which I don't understand that joke he's talking about the cat uh, I guess so the black cat who put him in this picture which begs the question who put Hugh. Yeah, who put you in this picture? What are you talking about? You're the one who doesn't belong. The movie is called. Maybe that's a play on he never realized that he was in the black cat the whole time. He was Oh, that makes sense. Maybe he just was He thought he was in a different movie. He thought he was in a Hugh Herbert real estate movie. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know what that movie was. Um I gotta check out some more Hugh Herbert movies. Because he's just one of those people who, like, I recognize, but I, I, uh, and I don't know. The, and how old was he in, in Black Cat? He's, he was, you know, definitely up there in age. He's got to be in his, yeah, like, I'm not sure. 50s to 60s, somewhere in there, right? Seems that way. Um, so I would imagine he had a long career before then. He probably was on vaudeville. He seems like that kind of guy. Yeah, he was in his late 50s. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so this is 41. He was born in 1884. Yeah, so he had to have come from, like, the vaudevillian stage routines and all that kind of stuff. He, uh, yeah, he's, on IMDb, he's got 115 credits. His last one is 1952, a short film called The Gink at the Sink. <laughs> uh, I don't know anything about that. He, he was also in a short film in 1946 called Get Along, Little Zombie. Huh. 
in which he plays a bumbling real estate agent. No kidding. Yeah, who uh, gets involved in a compromising situation with Christine McIntyre, who uh, <laughs> I mostly know from Three, Sto- Three Stooges shorts. Oh, okay, this was made for Columbia, so yes, that makes sense. No. Oh. Maybe one one day we'll do a Hugh Herbert month on talking movies. We'll do a Hugh Herbert year. Oh my. Yeah, sounds like a plan. But um but not yet. We have other plans at the moment. What are we what are we what are we doing <laughs> next episode? So next episode we're gonna keep rolling on with this universal horror talk and next time we're going to tackle an entire franchise of films. Which you wanted to do because you felt like they kind of get overlooked often. I underrated them for years. It's only recently uh, rewatching them with an audience that I began to appreciate them for what they are. And that is the Mummy films, specifically Karis the Mummy you know, from uh, 1940 to 1944. Yeah. So when you think of the Mummy, you usually think of the first image that pops to your mind is. Brendan Fraser. <laughs> yeah, it's Brendan right. Fraser. Exactly. Or Tom Cruise. Yeah, who is the mummy. Oh, spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> Deserves um, to be spoiled. <laughs> if ever a movie deserves to be spoiled. Um, no, the, well, the, the classic image that pops in your mind, the image that is on all of the marketing for Universal's monsters and all that kind of stuff is Boris Karloff as the mummy wrapped in bandages of course, you know, the mummy's wrapped in bandages. Boris Karloff, he's the mummy. Yeah, in that one scene, in that one movie. But it's literally in the first two minutes of the movie? One minute of the movie? And then throughout the rest of the mummy, he's just, he's, you know... Audit Bay. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't until... Like, the, the classic image of the shambling mummy didn't really come to be until its sequels, which weren't really sequels because they didn't really continue on the story. Yeah, because that was Imhotep and Princess Anxanamen. And with uh, the Tom Tyler and then Lon Chaney Jr. mummy movies, we have Karis and Princess Ananka. Yeah. Um, and we'll get into all of those. So how many films are there in the mummy in the series? Karis? In the uh, four. Line. There are four films, and they are... Starts with the mummy's hand. And then, see, I always get them confused, title-wise. The, the next two are either... It's the mummy's ghost and the mummy's tomb. And then, it, I'm not sure which one comes first. And then it ends with the mummy's curse. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, I mean, this is... In my mind, I've seen all of these movies. Yeah. But, boy, do they all mix up in my mind. Yeah. And, I mean, it's uh, the title, mostly is what's mixed up in my mind now because then like you know watching them with people and like really focusing i actually ended up getting really into them yeah cool so i'm i'm looking forward to looking at those films again before next episode and uh giving them another shot because i tend to overlook them too when i go back and watch some of those universal films i tend to focus on the frankenstein series and the wolfman movies so this will this will be good to. Uh, I've seen the first Mummy film multiple times, but in the Mummy's hand. But then I kind of you know I usually peter out with the with the sequels. So yeah, we'll look at that whole series. 
And uh, if you want to make sure you watch them ahead of time, they're readily available in uh, various editions. There's yeah. the Legacy Edition and whatnot. You can you can get the Legacy Collection of Mummy Films on Blu-ray for like 25 bucks on Amazon. And uh, we're sorry about this week's movies, if you had wanted to watch those. Because uh, Universal kind of sucks in, uh, at sort of like putting out their movies in certain, in certain instances. Yeah, right. I mean, right now, both of these Black Cat films are pretty much out of print. They're on. They were released on DVD in these two collections: the Bela Lugosi collection and the Universal Horror Classic Movie Archive. Yeah, both of them were the standard Universal thing where they just try to cram a bunch of movies onto just a couple discs. Yeah, uh, so you, so you'll find the 1934 Black Cat on the Bela Lugosi collection, and the 1941 black cat on the universal horror movie archive um and i'm and not sure what they the availability both, is but they were both released on vhs in the early 90s those might be floating around somewhere hmm. um but i mean you know give me a call i my copy <laughs> hopefully universal <laughs> will uh get around to releasing at least the 1934 version on blu-ray yeah i feel cri- like that could really criterion should get on that yeah I don't they've know, put they... out some universe they put out Magnificent Obsession and My Man Godfrey. Those are like mid-30s Universal movies. Yeah, it always seems like Universal keeps these horror films close to their chest. Yeah. They don't, you know, they don't like to play around with them as much. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, as far as recommendation goes, 1934 ver- version is uh, really great. I would definitely recommend it if you're interested in these in these films, for sure. Though the 1941 version does have some supporters, such as your girlfriend, Kayla. Yeah, Kayla uh, preferred the 1941 version over the 34 um, because of its lighter tone and uh, the presence of many, many cats and cute little kittens. And those points can't really be denied if you had to pick which one was lighter and which one had more cats than, yeah, hands 41 down. is your... And it's not like 41 was like a horrible... I feel like we kind of painted it as like, oh, that was terrible. Well, when you're comparing these two films. Yeah, and I and I think like it, it definitely highlights the difference in tone between the the two sort of horror cycles at Universal. And even visually, yeah, it's sort of lighter. Which is, I mean, the cinematographer on the 1941 version was actually Stanley Cortez, who a year later did The Magnificent Ambersons. Ah. And a decade later did Night of the Hunter. I have seen Magnificent Ambersons. That's an Orson Welles film. Um, yeah, but you can definitely tell, like, it's just lit lighter Yeah. in the 41 version. Everything in the in the 30s just feels like the blacks feel blacker or darker. Yes. And everything else in the 40s feels like it has a... Uh, like, even, like, when, you, when I think back to, the, to, like, the Wolfman, it feels like it has, like, just a more gray kind of tone more fog i think i don't mm-hmm. know more gray fog but yeah we'll get more into uh the 40s films next time when we talk about the mummy series so thank you for joining us for another exciting episode of talking movies i'm max i'm tim and we will see you next time <laughs>